I'm going to start with its charitable assumption that none of you have ever been a bad friend. Um, so there are, let's just pretend that there are other people, and everyone outside of this room potentially could be a bad friend, none of you. And, and by a bad friend, I mean someone, basically their whole relationship to you is defined with just a little bit of shame. Like when you tell a joke, or you stutter, or whatever, it's almost like they take it personally when that joke doesn't land. And they shake your hand, they enjoy being around you by their own testimony, but you're pretty sure you hear a sigh of relief as you're walking out the door. Well, my prayer this morning is that we are never that sort of friend towards Scripture itself. Because oftentimes it seems that when it comes to warning passages, and particularly the command to endure, to persevere, that we're that type of shy friend of Scripture who would shrink away rather than embrace it. For every one minute that may be spent on preaching perseverance, we almost have this need to fill in five minutes to bandage up the wounds of Scripture. But all of Scripture fits together well. And this morning as we hear a command to persevere, I want you to be confident that Scripture is our friend. And also that we are going to need friends in order to persevere. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to turn to Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you harden, sorry, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was not all who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. C.S. Lewis is probably one of the world's most quoted authors, and it's for good reason. In his personal correspondence alone, so not including introductions to his friend's books that he wrote, his books themselves, or his biographical sketches, just his personal correspondence, he's responsible for 3,700 pages of literature. Of a body of words that large, it makes sense that he is so often quoted. However, he also has the interesting distinguishment of being one of the most misquoted authors uh, in the English language. 
Uh, in 2018, William O'Flaherty quoted, uh, published the misquotable C.S. Lewis. In the book chronicles 75 different quotes, which have been widely attributed to Lewis, but either came from his friends or just from the internet. So be on the watch out for fake C.S. Lewis quotes. Verse 7 of our chapter today begins, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And if your original hearer of the letter to the Hebrews didn't understand the way that God was behind Scripture, he may have thought that this was a misquotation. Verses 7 through 11 are a quotation of Psalm 95. And any good Jewish, Jewish listener who paid attention and was taught well knew that David was the author of Psalm 95. But here it's attributed clearly to the Holy Spirit. And because it is attributed to the Holy Spirit, his authority is behind this text and is meant to be felt from this text. And this is a step that the author took deliberately that we would take care of each other so that we all might hear the text correctly. The psalm and its reference of the Holy Spirit he, help us heed the warning that comes after it. So in order for us to feel the force of this quotation, allow me to elaborate a little bit more on the significance of why it starts with, therefore, the Holy Spirit says. First, the power of God's word doesn't come from letters, words, sentences, paragraphs, or books. John Owen said that the obedience to Scripture, based on its good composition as a book, is the carcass of duty. It is obedience in its hollowest and emptiest form. It might even have the right shape to it, but it's devoid of any life. But God did give us a book of exquisite perfection. The, the word choice is perfect. The structure of the arguments is perfect. The amount of detail is perfect. The, the beauty of this book is perfect. Its commands are perfect. What other book has commands which are described to revive the soul? But the power of Scripture still does not lie in perfect composition. Rather, the perfection of Scripture is a testimony to the power behind it, namely the authority of our living God. All of Scripture is God-breathed, an easy truth to affirm, but one that it's good to think on long and hard. There's three main instances, two of which are stories, one of which is a, a statement where we hear that God breathed out in the Bible. First one involves a body built up from the elements of the ground. It was a perfect body in every way except for one. It wasn't alive. Adam, whose heart and brain were fully formed, was not complete without the breath of God breathing into him and adding life to the equation. The perfectly crafted body that Adam had needed the breath of God to come alive. So the breath of God we see in Scripture can impart physical life. The second major story where we see the breath of God is when Jesus was walking with 11 of his disciples after the resurrection, and he presented to them the wounds in his hands, the wound on his side. And then he does something that would be very odd 
if anyone who wasn't God was the one doing it. He breathed on them and bestowed to them the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that would tame their flesh and give them the, the moral law of God, not just in their brain, in their habits, but living in their heart. So we see the breath of God also gives spiritual life. But third, Paul, in writing to Timothy, states that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And in this sense, we have a book that has living authority. It transcends the time that it was written to be sufficient for all of life. Every word of Scripture is imbued with life-giving, living authority of the Holy Spirit. And we call this inspiration. We need the breath of God given through the word so that we can have life. I want to think a little bit closer about inspiration. That means that God is behind every text, in every text, and his authority flows from every text. When we think of the process of inspiration, we usually only think of the behind part. That God is responsible for the creative process of taking a human author and his words and perfecting it through his will by giving us scripture. But there is more to it than that. He's also in scripture. That the exact word and the exact image that we receive is exactly where his authority lay. But important to our text today, inspiration also means that his authority flows from Scripture, flows forward from Scripture into our life today. The seven-word lesson at the beginning of this chapter, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, tells us that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate speaker of life-giving text today. Every last one of them is for us today. The Spirit is your guide to life in Christ from Genesis to Psalms, from Lamentation to Philemon to Revelation. And while some texts in the Bible are given more priority than others, there is no word in this book without authority behind it, in it, stretching forward from it. So, as we hear the word of the Lord today, and Hebrews 3 in particular, listen, going on from that declaration, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. This is why they have water up here. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The words from this come from Psalm 95, as I said before, and is being used as an instructive warning against the hardening of the hearts using an example in the history of Israel in the wilderness. The original psalm being quoted is telling us of a specific incident. You don't need to turn there directly, but it comes from Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, it reads, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. I had water. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water 
And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. So even after the parting of the Red Sea, after the coming of plagues, and all this that God does to free a people uh, from ignorance of him, from separation from him, bondage to the nation of Egypt, the seed of unbelief is there right after their escape. Instead of a response of faith, there's anger directed against Moses, who we spoke of as God's representative last week. The Lord responds to Moses as he cries out for help against this mob forming against him and says, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you will strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of a quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And then Amalek came and fought Israel at Rephidim. So out of a rock came water to save the lives of the people of Israel. And it would be a fantastic ending to the story if that's the last we see of their rebellion. Because God has been working miracles now for generation after generation. Uh, some grand and spectacular, some small and almost invisible, to give them faith. And yet, fresh out of captivity, the hearts turned towards unbelief. Hebrews 9 says that for 40 years they looked upon his works. And he was provoked. And he noticed that during these whole 40 years, 40 years full of mercy and grace and miracles, their hearts were continually astray. There was rarely a season of faithfulness during that time. And so he said there would be a consequence for faithlessness. The continual turning of the heart away from God has results. As our text last week said, God is the head of his house. Uh, once it was represented, managed in a way by Moses, and now it's represented by Christ, the faithful servant and son. And now the image here is of a faithful servant son who's over a house full of rebellious hearts, which are always going astray. A house with a faithful servant full of hearts turned towards rebellion means that the house will have no rest. The verse goes on to say that when he was provoked, it was an entire generation which suffered the consequences of disobedience. We as a culture, as a people and a nation have seen some ways that a whole generation can have peace and rest stolen from them. Uh, my father is a Vietnam-era veteran and is one such person. He remembers a generation, generation where everyone of good health was called to be subjected to the horrors of war. And if not war, the horrors of it, at least conditioning for it. My own earliest childhood memory, I think I can say that truthfully, out of every memory I have, is of uh, sitting on the floor in Ireland 
and a green VHS tape popping out of a television. Um, and the television word, and it reset to the um, television setting rather than VHS. And on the screen was this camera angle of two buildings, uh, one with smoke pouring out of it and one standing there relatively unaffected. As I asked my mother and father to put on uh, the next show, next VHS saves, they told me that this was important, that I needed to watch and listen, and my um, dad was called in from working at the church. And uh, I watched as a second plane hit a second tower. 9-11 has been referred to as a, a psychic scar on the soul of America that would change the nation forever. And it was even traumatic enough for a three-year-old like myself to have it burned into my memory. The rest denied to Israel looks like an entire generation being affected in a similar way, if not a worse way. They were picked off by Amalekite raiders. They were bitten by poisonous vipers. Some starved, some overate on manna, some died of old age. The Bible, in fact, tells us that out of its entire unthankful generation, two men walked out alive, Joshua and Caleb. The denial of rest was enforced because of an oath God made in his own name that his faithfulness is not to be responded to by faithlessness. And so their fate was sealed. The rest which Israel was denied is also the rest that the audience of Hebrews may be denied. It's a rest that anyone who has a heart given over to unbelief will be denied. And as the story is traced from Exodus to Psalm 95 to Hebrews 3, the Holy Spirit speaks to us today. You could be denied that rest. But there is a warning for you to hear so that none of you might fall. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, with the very first two words here, we see God is giving us a warning that we could fail to enter into his rest, not to strike terror into our hearts, not to inspire horror, but rather It's gentle. It's telling them to take care. And even through telling them to take care, it is a way of taking care of the listener. It's an address given to brothers as well. He is telling brothers to take care. It is a friendly address from the author of Hebrews. And yet there may be a contradiction in your mind as you listen to what follows. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, if all these brothers are Christians, that fits with the picture for the most part, because we know that even as believers, our hearts can be turned towards sin and sinfulness. But it's made more confusing by the next statement, that it would lead you to fall away from the living God. And if everything that we believe about assurance and security is challenged by that phrase— That's good, because this is a tension in the text on purpose. Because three ideas are given to us all at once to receive as the words of God. That we can be brothers with unbelieving hearts. And there are those with unbelieving hearts 
who may fall away from the living God. Perhaps to get clarity, we shouldn't focus our minds and hearts on the fact that they are called brothers, but rather on the thing that these brothers are being warned about, an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, who has hearts? Believers or unbelievers? Both do. All have a heart, that inner being. And there is a type of unbelief that turns the heart away from faith in God, and a type of unbelief that turns the heart away from faithfulness to God. Unbelief that turns the heart from faith, and unbelief that turns the heart from faithfulness. An unbelief which lasts will always damn and bar one from entering into God's rest. If that is true, that means that the the spirit-given, authority-filled, life-giving warning includes everything that is needed to save the lost and to rescue backsliders. So what is our response to this warning? Verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The future of this room is in the hands of this room. We are called to be each other's watchdogs. In the same way that last week's chapter presented Jesus as the hero and leader who came from the presence of God to free us from sin, the expectation of Scripture is that we would, in some sense, be each other's horizontal heroes, that we are to take care of one another and to be stewards not only of our own spiritual growth, but also for those around us. And for ones who are deceived in sin and believe themselves to be in Christ and yet are not, we are the ones called to be their evangelist. So what are we to exhort each other with? The message of Hebrews that we've heard so far is about the person and work of Jesus Christ in all areas of life. The exact nature of God come as a man to free us from the fear of death, to be our high priest, to cleanse us from sin. And he has called us into a life of abiding in him and a life of abiding in his church. People come from different types of churches. And perhaps the type of church that you came from was one where the gospel was not preached every week. Or perhaps instead it was the type of church where only the invitation to the gospel was the core and meat of every sermon, and nothing beyond that. I have not had that experience here. At Heritage, I hear the gospel every week, and I am called into deeper discipleship every week. We are without excuse. And yet, there remains a real threat that there is someone who has not heard the gospel from you. That they have never been stirred up to be obedient by you. We must, as a community, push each other to continue until the end. For all who do not continue until the end are denied rest. The lost in our midst could be saved. The backslider can be rescued. An older, classical, even medieval description of the job of the pastor is a, a shepherd who leads others into heaven. But if we take the instruction of Hebrews 3.13, not only is it the job description of the pastor, it is the job description of the entire church that we shepherd and usher each other 
on the road to heaven. Together, we are called to glory in our Redeemer until we get to look on his face. Not falling away is a whole church project, and we need to embark on that together. Now, towards that end, I'm going to give you nine examples of what it means for us to exhort one another with the gospel towards lasting faith, lest we fall away and do not enter into God's rest. Some will be examples of illustration. Some will be examples of implication. Some will be applications for us in the room. Three from nature, three from scripture, and three for our church. First, consider God's design of flowers. The lone flower has no way of surviving an environment alone. By God's design, every flower relies on a whole ecosystem full of the living and the dead in order to fertilize the very soil it can grow in. And for that flower to pass on its own seeds, it needs other flowers. Flowers reproduce by pollination, which requires the nearby presence of another flower. Similarly, we are reliant on each other to form the right environment to thrive and pass on life from person to person. Second, animals. Not every animal is a pack animal. We tend to associate vigor and strength and nobility, not with loners, but with pack animals. The lion's grace and strength is not diminished by being part of a pride. Uh, The terror of a wolf is its pack. Uh, Sharks are a nightmare fish of the sea, and it's made a whole lot worse once you realize that they also travel in packs. A single fire ant has probably never ruined your day, but stepping into the anthill has. Only the deceitful lie of pride could convince you that you're actually stronger alone rather than with the church. Third, from nature, society. There is a reason that we tend to think of hermits as the exception. Uh, Most of the world is increasingly living in cities. And it makes sense because in cities there are more providers of jobs and more people to work for jobs. But the opposite is true. Smaller communities are often the ones where people rely on each other the most. Even in the height of the medieval era and the monastic practices, groups of men would surrender all their life to step away from society to go live with other men. Friends sharing in lives together is not even remotely distinct to the Christian. It's a normal part of being human. What the Christian must do that is unique is that is what he promotes in the lives of other Christians. Now, from Scripture, first we have Adam and Eve. We're told that it is not good for man to be alone. Not a debatable statement. We're told that it is not good for man to be alone. No wiggle room. So God gave Adam a wife and joined life together with that woman to be the helper of the man, that the man may wash the woman in the word and sanctify her, and that she could be his helper for every need. More broadly, moving away from marriage, we see that God didn't create one man and call it done. But instead, humanity at its best looks like us entangled in each other's lives in a way that we are instruments for each other's sanctification. Secondly, from Scripture, we see a model in Israel, a community full of priests, 
that took care of the needs of a community, a community full of prophets who spoke truth publicly in the community, a community built on the foundation of a Shema, where everyone was dedicated to creating and raising their children by the nurture, in the nurture of the faith. God could have formed a people the same way he called out Abraham, one individual soul at a time across the globe, but instead he formed a nation that lived together in covenant together. And the church is similar in the way that we are a covenant community brought together in Christ. A third example from Scripture, the answer is always right, would be the example of Jesus. As the prophecy in Isaiah names him, Wonderful Counselor. His public ministry revolved around the formation of 12 men who would be the followers not only of what he said, but also what he did. And from them, their confession, he would create the faith that would save the world. The counseling of Jesus in the lives of 11 of the disciples and Paul is the fountain from which every true church in the world descends. Our faith flows downstream from the apostles' own faith. And by virtue of Jesus being the one that taught them, our faith comes directly from Christ, not only supernaturally, also historically. It's a cool thought for you. So let's look at our own church, which has received faith from Christ to live together. First, we have pews. Yeah, the the wooden kind of L-shaped things with pads on them that you're sitting in right now. Some people sit in a different one every week. That's me, typically. And some people sit in the same pew every week. You may have noticed that even the largest family in our church doesn't fill a full pew. And even if they did, they wouldn't fill that pew, and the pew behind it, and in front of it. This space is mostly built for us to sing the word, hear the word, and go forth to apply the word into our lives. But we're also in a social space. When you notice someone missing for a few weeks, you're the closest connection to reach out to them, the person that's usually in the same pew as them or by their pew. When you see someone who is in visible emotional distress, the person closest to you has the easiest connection to reach out. Heritage Bible Church, in my experience, has mostly felt like a small church because it takes a little bit of effort to start getting to know people and lots of people once you start applying yourself. But you can press deeper. You can go deeper and know people deeper. Don't show up every week just to sing with strangers. It's a little weird. Sing with your friends. Build friendships out of your pew. Second, we have shepherding groups. Thought about just leaving it right there, not going any further, but you have an organic community of people that live close to you. People like you and people unlike you. And if you don't see opportunities for ministry there, or even any opportunity for ministry at Heritage, you're probably not in a shepherding group. Third, we have a counseling ministry. Two main reasons that I think people typically don't think of themselves as counselors or involve themselves in it is that they don't believe they're competent or they don't know that they bear a responsibility. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you hear that? Did you understand that as I've explained it so far? So good. You know you have a responsibility 
to preach the gospel and disciple those around you in our church, meaning all that is left if you're not doing it is to grow in competency. If your conscience is compelling you to get involved, get involved. Okay, nine examples. I think I'd call that extended application in preaching. Moving on. When we are to speak the gospel into each other's life, when are we to do it? How, how rare should this be? How casual can we be in being a Christian who lives with other Christians? The answer of the verse is, you take care, brothers, as long as it is called today. Today. This is to be our lives, as long as we are called alive, you could phrase it. That none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, because sin is ever-present. The chance for the heart, believer or unbeliever, to be locked in the deceitfulness of sin is ever-present, so we ought to be ever-present for each other. Now, remember, Jesus has accused in the Gospels both Pharisees and disciples of having a hard heart. And that covers just about the full gamut of people in nearness to Christ. It doesn't have to be the person who's been backsliding for months and months. It may as well be the person who's here physically every week and yet still has her life clouded by unbelief. They need you to exhort them so that they will not fall away. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This verse could be a whole sermon. I wanted to make it my whole sermon. I'm not going to. Let me make sure, but you have one thing imprinted on your mind as you walk away from verse 14. Your ability to continue on in your faith and enter into the rest God offers is based on your union with Christ. And that is also what we need to be pointing others to. The union with Christ, which they've been made to share in. Well, verse 14 includes the word if. It's not really an, as much an if of condition as much as it is an if of description. Coming to share in Christ describes a definite past event. And if it has happened, it's evidenced by the continuation of faith into the present. It is an evidence caused by a reality, not a reality earned by your presentation of evidence. In other words, your union with Christ does not depend on whether or not you continue to the end. Whether or not you continue to the end depends on whether or not you're in union with Christ. And we are able to continue in Christ because of all that we have come to share with him. So let's take that confidence in our union with Christ so that we can enter his rest. Verses 15 through 19. I'll read them again. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell into the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they are unable to enter 
because of unbelief. Here the author returns us to the spirit-spoken words of Psalm 95. And we're shown each step of their journey in unbelief has a consequence. The ones who rebelled, the ones whose bodies ended up falling in the wilderness, failing to enter God's rest, started with unbelief after receiving the kindness of God. For those who, for, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt led by Moses? The very ones that witnessed the exodus. And now he's bringing this up again to apply it to the current situation. This is not history now, but history laid over the people receiving the letter of the Hebrews and by the Holy Spirit laid over our lives as well. You can have the religious experience, be present in the religious community, and have a hard heart. And if you do not continue in your faith, you will not receive the rest of God. You need the Spirit of Christ, the Word of Christ, the community of Christ, and union with Christ in order to persevere and endure to the end of your journey. And as the description of this downward spiral that ends with them dead in the desert concludes with a warning, I'd call everyone here to think on the flip side. What we experience if this is not the case for us. There will be future sermons, several, talking about the idea of rest itself. And I I intentionally haven't defined it very clearly. If, if I could give you a short definition, it would be the benefits of Christ in this life and a future rest offered for eternity. Temporal rest, eschatological rest. What we have now in Jesus Christ, that peace, and the peace that goes on forever. That is what is at risk of being lost. And that is what we need to remind each other to strive for. Now, look back at Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And let the foundation of that, therefore, stir your spirit to know the path to rest. You may continue in the faith in order to experience the rest of God. And we have been called together as a community to urgently warn each other of unbelief in our midst. And we take aim at unbelief by exhorting the glories of Christ, for Christ who is the source of our faith, who is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, who descended and defeated the fear of death, who has cleansed us from all sin, who leads the household of God as a perfect leader of our community, the very Son of God become a servant for you. Place your faith in him. Be faithful to him. Obey your responsibility to counsel others. And by God's grace, we will have rest in Christ now and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the rest that you offer to us. This Lord's Day is often called a day of rest. And yet it's not a day where we're isolated. It's appropriate that this is the day that we are known for coming together. Use your spirit now and the hearts of those here to 
get the people of Heritage Bible Church involved in each other's lives, for them to know it is their responsibility and no one else's to see that we as a community walk together and journey together towards heaven. As the end of this chapter concludes with a series of downward steps, a decline that ends with the death of a whole generation, I I pray that we would see the building up of a generation here, that your spirit and his kindness would show us the sun and help us to experience this rest, that hard hearts would be turned soft and that they would be malleable, formable, not by our own will, not by the will of those around us, but by the commands of your word. Help us to hear you from all of scripture. Help us to be involved in each other's lives and help us to enter into your rest. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.